Just a heads up before we get started. This episode involves discussions of suicide. We got roofing starting on Monday. And uh, followed directly by roofing is the install of solar panels. Are you talking to me or talking to yourself? Are you talking to yourself? I'm talking to myself. Oh. I'm recording segments for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right now. I'm super into myself, so I like to record all my darkest thoughts. Really? Yeah. No, I'm participating in a, a podcast. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 40, Boys Don't Cry. No, we haven't started yet. We're going to give people a few minutes because it's only one minute two right now. So, and I hope everybody doesn't mind, but I'm going to smoke a cigarette. I know it's kind of unprofessional, but it's late in the day and I'm on vacation. So I'm going to smoke anyway. (laughs) It's Thursday, June 23rd, and the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs is holding a Zoom meeting. This is the first session for a new working group organized by Natasha Twinor and Anjay Selinsky. The group is tasked with gathering information about what it's like to work in the trades and use drugs. And they're launching at an ominous time. We should go into sort of why we called this this working group. The construction industry has been referred to as ground zero for toxic drug-related deaths in Canada. It's a crisis that's affected many people in many walks of life. But one group that may be overrepresented is people working in the construction industry. And the most recent report from the BC Coroner Service suggests that working-aged men are very much at risk. Since the overdose crisis was officially declared in BC in 2016, Health researchers have found that men account for approximately 75% of all overdose deaths. The researchers have also found that among people who had a job at the time of their death, somewhere between 30 and 50% worked in the trades. Um, This is my first meeting ever with this. Kind of nervous, but I'm excited. The new members of Kapud's working group are calling in from Nova Scotia, Ontario, and British Columbia. They're pavers, electricians, and commercial glazers. They all seem to recognize that this meeting is a rare opportunity. It's a chance to talk about their drug use openly, without fear of reprisal or condemnation. I need this because I'm an in-the-closet person, so I don't really get to talk to people with other experiences like me. This is is good. You know, being in the closet was one thing, and we we do that very well. Like we, you know, as addicts, doesn't matter if you're in the trades or not. We do it really well. We hide that shit. Everyone agrees. Keeping your mouth shut is vital if you don't want to get shit canned. There's a zero tolerance policy when it comes to substance use in the trades. If you're found out, you're gone. No questions asked. But ironically, these industries also rely on drugs. Cocaine and stimulants help maintain a demanding rate of production. And opioids help with the inescapable pain that comes with the work. Every single new company I work with, uh, there's like absolute zero tolerance things that I have to sign. You know, you're just gonna like lose everything if you're caught with like even like a joint in your bag or something like that, you know? Uh, And we all know it's this like fucking like open secret, not a secret that like... I I feel like on the sites I'm on, it's just completely common for like people to get almost no sleep all the time, 
for people to be hooked on all kinds of different opiates, uh, uh, you know, and using different stimulants. But like, nobody can talk about it at all. It's almost as if uh, substance use is promoted. All of us did it, all of us. And the whole Toronto construction freaking system is, is, is using, you know, here, pump yourself up. Here's some rocket fuel, keep going, right? And everybody turned a blind eye to this shit. Like our company always, you know, says, you know, come to us if you're having substance use problems, we're here for you. So I anonymously phoned them and just asked some questions about what was actually in my benefits. And basically it's nothing. So nobody in their right mind would uh, out themselves. I learned a long time ago just to never say anything. I'm always fine, everything's good until it isn't. On today's show, we're going to explore the deadly culture of secrecy around drug use in the trades. And in order to do this, we're going to tell the story of one guy, a construction industry vet named Trevor Bodkin. Morning. Morning. How we doing, buddy? Got all checked in? Got your safety done? All right. Okay, let's start here. Trevor's 48 years old, around my age. He's worked in construction for over 25 years. Today, Trevor lives in Victoria, BC, where he runs an organization called Hero Works. His job, basically, is to lead teams to do free renovation work for charities and nonprofits. Oh, give me a sec. Give me a sec for this old guy to. Yeah, you're 21 feet. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Trevor, have you known a lot of people who've uh, been in your industry, like you've known personally, who've died from overdose? Yeah, we've I, we lose about one a year, really, that I'm that I know personally. Um, right. And then you know you hear of it; it's pretty constant. We're losing guys. I mean, just last year I had a a trade generously reach out to me to donate some tools that belong to a, another trade we knew who had volunteered for us. You know, we lost that gentleman. Um, Tell me about those tools. What did he, uh, what did he, what yeah. was donated from him? Everything from tin bashing tools to, uh, to, I think it was a vacuum and some hammers. It was a tool pouch and some random drill bits and, and stuff like that. Right. So right. it's happening all the time. I know a young man uh, worked as a drywall guy three or four years ago now they found him in one of the developments they were building in a in a in the garage of a framed up house oh, we've got a i got one challenge here buddy that chunk of concrete yeah we gotta rise up there do you think that's gonna be straight enough i don't know <laughs> Can I get off i'm game if you are yeah this would uh, rank very low on the uh, on the uh, list of risks I've taken in my life. <laughs> Not gonna get into that combo. You know, you know, buddy. You know, coming up, I went into school. I had like this this um, um, out of control curly hair. Um, I had a massive overbite, uh, like just huge. My teeth were way out of whack and crooked jaw and, and all this. And I came up in a time where like 
they wouldn't do anything about it until I, I sort of had matured and quit growing. Otherwise, it'd be a waste to do surgery. Growing up in the Cowichan Valley, Trevor says he was treated like an ugly duckling by other kids. He remembers that he'd start talking, and before he'd even finished the sentence, he could tell he was annoying everyone around him. None of his jokes landed, and he didn't know what he could do to make people like him more. It went to teachers. I didn't do very well academically. I had teachers that would like, you know, I'd be nodding off because I didn't sleep well. I had massive anxiety in school, so, you know, it was hard for me sometimes to stay mm -hmm. alert and teacher would be like, Trevor, what are we doing today? And I'd be like, I don't know. And they'd be like, we're doing an experiment to see if you have any brains in your head. And so like as a kid, you're thinking, well, okay, I have to go to school right now. And you're feeling a lot of anxiety. I mean, if you're like me, early teenage years, you start to find booze as a way to deal with some of that. Totally, I found my personality there. Beer wasn't enough because it didn't get me drunk enough. And it just, it felt like, you know, like when I looked at the ratio of how much rye I would need versus how much beer, I was like, a fool goes for the beer. I mean, come on. Because it was never, <laughs> it was never about the flavor, the taste. It was always about getting drunk because that's where I felt comfortable. You know, when I drink, when I, back when I was drinking, it was like immediately, you know, two, three shots in, I'm shutting that right off. Booze ushered in a new era into Trevor's life. It gave him a kind of persona, a mask that seemed to be less objectionable to the people around him. Looking back, Trevor describes himself as a kind of human party favor. He was one of the guys leading the charge on drinking, happy to put on a kind of amusing spectacle of drunkenness. Somewhere deep down, Trevor knew he still wasn't being accepted for who he truly was. But after years of being picked on, it just felt good to be accepted at all. And this is like in the couch in Valley, right? So is this yeah. like bush parties or oh, what? Oh, totally bush parties, man. Like yeah, yeah. Bush parties, tragically hip, hip and old time rock and roll, man. It was the best. So is there one like song, like one tragically hip song that takes you right back, like right back to a bush party? Do you know what? I don't know. I said tragically hip, but if I had to pick a song, it would be, uh, uh, there was that one album from, um, it's that Australian band. Midnight Oil? Midnight Oil. Midnight yeah. Oil. There's that one famous album they did and anything off of that. So like beds are burning, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right? man. That's we're obviously gonna play Midnight Oil yeah. in this part. That you know, like <laughs> for sure, yeah, for sure. If it's tragically hip versus Midnight Oil, fucking yeah. a. Yeah, before you play it, let me get my sponsor on the phone in case it takes me too far back. <laughs> <laughs> So what kind of what kind of shit did you do when you were drunk? Driving, was... fighting, um, you know the 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 energy around me. Uh, it was bordering on violent fun. It was bonfires and you know fighting in the forest and you know half your drunk drive home was on dirt roads flipping your car in the ditch. Right, like it's uh, chaos. People locking their keys in the trunk of the beer and we hack a person's trunk open with an axe to get the beer because that was the most important thing. Like, we had no other problems in life. Now, half of us didn't know what we were gonna do with the next chapter, so we were just eager to stretch this chapter out as long as we could. Trevor's most important role model at this time was his dad, Terry. Terry was, in Trevor's words, the classic idea of a man. 
He was shaped a bit like a cylinder, and he loved wearing a polo shirt tucked into his jeans. Terry was polite, stoic, and above all else, a hard worker. Or as Trevor puts it, a man with Julius Caesar-like ambitions. Terry worked as a small-town cop, putting in enough overtime at the job that he was still being paid two years after his retirement. Terry would wake up every day between 4 and 5 a.m. to manage a cattle farm. He also ran a cancer charity and organized the local folk festival. When Trevor joined the Boy Scouts, his dad became a leader, where he had a nearly perfect attendance record. Trevor found all of this inspiring, but also intimidating. Either way, at this time, he says he more or less accepted his dad's overarching philosophy. There's nothing you can't solve by working hard. There's not, no problems you can't get through in life by showing up to work uh, on time and, and doing your part. If you want to get, you can have anything you want in life as long as you work, uh, work hard at it. And in the set of shoes that I always felt I had to fill with him, like he was actually a hero. Like this guy was, he pulled people out of a plane wreck. I mean, how do I, you know, I'm like. Yeah, how do you, how do you compete with that? Yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah. who am I? But I continue trying to fill that void inside me that said I wasn't enough. But there was also a darker side of Trevor's dad's work ethic. For much of Trevor's life, his dad battled a rare blood disease similar to leukemia. Terry asked the family to keep it secret, not wanting anyone's sympathy. He needed a bone marrow transplant, but he refused it again and again because he didn't want to take time off work to recover. Terry tried to manage it with antibiotics instead, but everyone knew that wasn't ideal. Roof team! Okay, you're all tied in. Yep. You guys are good and happy. Yep. We're putting three up there. These shovels have teeth. Those teeth wrap around the nails. That heel acts as a pry. So when I go under, I'm gonna pry. Under, pry. Nice, getting started sucks, but once you get a roll, it's super satisfying. There you go, felt that go. There it is. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, guys. You know, when I came into this industry, I was in no rush to go to university. My school experience was not great. I didn't finish strongly. I, I didn't think I was very smart, um, but I knew I was strong and and uh, and uh, I loved swinging a hammer. And the first weekend, I was like, this is my place to be. And I got there, I just saw people that didn't I knew didn't fit in elsewhere either. I was like, I couldn't see that guy in an office building. I couldn't see that person yeah, in, like, look uh, at that in a guy university. Has a tattoo of a donkey on his neck. That's He's right. He's not going to be the CEO of fuck all. You Fantastic. Know? Well, I mean, maybe today you could be. But <laughs> but at the same time, they kind of seem like the cool kids, right? They were tough yeah. as nails. I, I kind of noticed this too. You know, I first of all, I clocked right away. There was other people uh, who were using drugs, but there's other people who've maybe had a you know, brush with the law or they didn't kind of go fly the straight and narrow. You know what I mean? There was kind of people that I could relate to around there. Yeah. When I got onto a job site, uh, my sense of humor suddenly fit in. Like, you know, rather than being the irritating new guy, I was like the endearing new guy. Woo! Almost there. Almost there, champions. <coughs> For me, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just like the heroin would hit just right and pulling wires through, you know, before the sheetrock went on everything and you're just drilling little holes and pulling the wires through the, through the walls. And if something goes wrong, you get to like have this satisfying kind of math or, or like process of elimination to solve the, where did you fuck something up? You know? Right. Like for me, 
it was all about flow. And when I felt like I got into a rhythm, and especially with like wall building, usually under the sun with no shirt on, and you know, you got your headphones in or the stereos on, you're listening to CJ92, you got the old time rock going, and the construction is the best. Just because of my background and how I came into the business, I was immediately very uh, successful. I, uh, you know, I went back to my parents. I said, look, I love this business. I love these people. I don't want to go to school. And my dad just said, well, that's, that's fine. You got to give me a strong argument about why. He said, I want you to come back next week and tell me uh, where you see yourself in five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, because this can't just be a job. If you're not going to go to university, you're going to have to tell me how this is going to be a career for you. And so I had to go and think of it. And I came back and I told him, look, I see myself as a journeyman in, in three years. In five years, I see myself as a, as a foreman. And by 30, I'll own my own company. And um, he smirked. He thought it was kind of, you know, he's happy to see me do the planning, but I don't think he took it very seriously. Okay, here we go. Concrete truck is on site. As we know, concrete and cranes wait for no man. I'll take the plywood down here, please. Um, yeah, it's kind of a anxious day because you worry about concrete blowouts and things you missed and all kinds of stuff. So you want to make sure you've got everything buttoned up, as they say, and ready to go and everything moves smooth. Just out a bit if you get Yeah. This here is why... This is here is why trades go for a beer after... Yeah, go, go, go. Uh, just out a bit if you get, yeah. You know, uh, there's certain people I meet that are just like really hard workers. Like they just take this uh, highball and sort of work ethic to their job. And, and they also take that to their drug use. Sounds like you might be a bit like that. Totally. It's all or nothing with me. The hanging out, having some beers and doing a few lines was like, that was what I did it all for. I know when I was in Calgary, uh, very fond memories of this place called the King's Head Pub. And we'd all go in there on Wednesday nights was the big night. And, uh, um, and then it was, you know, Tuesday nights at the Joker for wing night. We'd go down there and we'd um, drink way too much. And uh, half the crew would have heat stroke on Wednesday morning. Uh, but they'd somehow make it to work in the afternoon and they'd make it to the King's Head Pub on Wednesday night. When I showed up, uh, the party showed up. You know, anything that was available was kind of the, the buffet I was at. Hmm. But uh, the things that I love the most were benzodiazepines, ketamine, and cocaine. I do a line. I do one rip, and that euphoria that I got everything under control and I can handle everything, that, you know, in the end, half an hour of peace was worth all the pain that I went through to get it. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. was a relaxant for me until it wasn't. But the beauty and the euphoria I had in that period, that small period of time um, where it was working, um, that was the greatest me medicine I could have ever had in that moment. Uh, it was it was keeping it was allowing me to show up in my life and on many different fronts, whether it was family, whether it was work, whether it was my social life. Oh, I hear you 100 percent. It was a, it yeah. was medicine, man. It kept me. Yeah. I don't know what my life would have looked like without it. Honestly, I don't so, think I would be here, frankly. Yeah, me too, yeah. man. When Trevor was 25, his dad, Terry, got very sick and was forced to go to the hospital for a bone marrow transplant. Against the orders from medical staff, Terry mowed the family's entire property before heading in. Even in the hospital, Trevor said his dad wouldn't slow down. 
He remembers the disbelief he felt when Terry explained over the phone that the nurses were great. They were letting him have access to a printer and a fax machine, which meant that he could manage a band from his hospital bed while they were on tour in Spain. The next morning, Trevor got a call. His father was dying. His immune system had been severely weakened, and he was unable to fight off a superbug that had spread through the hospital. After his dad died, Trevor felt alone and exposed. There were so many things he still needed to learn from his dad, so much that he wanted his help with, but that didn't slow Trevor down. If anything, Trevor threw himself even more fully into his work. The following year, he became a foreman and later a superintendent. Trevor was actually keeping up with the trajectory he had pitched to his father years earlier. And he was right on schedule, taking on more and more responsibility and managing more and more people. And to keep on top of all of that, he was also doing more and more drugs. In the end, I was in this cycle of, um, I would use benzos during the day while I worked, if you could call it that, until around lunchtime where I would take a nap. And, and by three o'clock that afternoon, I was finding an excuse to leave work early. And then as soon as I hit rush hour, I was using cocaine. As soon as I got to my base of origin or my safe space, then I'd start using cocaine and ketamine, continue that till about four in the morning. And when I would uh, have a cold shower, I would uh, rest it off or relax it off or whatever. And then, um, and then I would use benzos to sort of give myself the confidence um, and a sense of well-being that I needed to, to leave my house again and go back to work. So that was kind of, you know, there's exceptions to it, but that was pretty much my daily life. Trevor had managed to keep his drug use secret from most of the people in his life, which meant he was usually using alone without anybody there to help if he overdosed. Trevor felt burnt out, alienated, and overworked. He badly needed to take time off. And he also badly needed to talk to the people who loved him, to ask for their help. But none of that really felt possible. I really had spent, you know, the lion's share of my adult life and most of my childhood pretending to be somebody else and to be, you know, like hiding who I was. I had built an image around myself of being in charge, being a problem solver, getting the job done. So it didn't fit into my personal identity to be weak in any area. There's no question. The way men are socialized, the way we are taught to repress our emotions and hide any sign of vulnerability, it's a big part of why overdoses are so high, particularly among men working in the trades. But these kinds of social factors aren't the only reason why people like Trevor don't want to speak up. Hypercapitalism feeds hypermasculinity. Years of deindustrialization, union bashing, and falling wages have made workers more precarious. And Trevor and the guys on his crew didn't have any paid sick leave. In fact, when Trevor suffered a major injury, he had little choice but to avoid medically necessary surgery because he knew his bosses would be pissed if he went on workers' comp. And that was for a physical injury. Trevor knew there'd be even less tolerance for anything having to do with mental health or substance use. You know, failures or having a substance or addiction catch up to you, to even be suffering emotionally um, or feeling weak, um, there's just, there is, there's been no place in the job site culture for that to be acceptable. 
Uh, my site orientation was two and a half hours uh, my first day. Well, it was before my first day of work. And the entire, out of two and a half hours, I think we talked about la safe ladder use for about 45 minutes. And the talk about being inebriated, whether it's drugs or alcohol, was about as long as it took to say if you're drunk or high on a job site, you're fired. That sets a tone right away. What Trevor heard at that safety briefing was pretty final. And I've worked at places with these kind of zero tolerance rules too. I mean, if someone is unsafe to work for any reason, they shouldn't be on the job that day. But just because you have drugs in your system doesn't mean that you're all fucked up and presenting some kind of hazard. Many people need to medicate in order to work. Millions do it safely every day. But absolutist rules drive us underground, and they even ban legit medications like methadone and suboxone from many parts of the industry. Good for a wounded warrior, Kerry? You want to, yeah? See, I haven't done this in a few years. Oh my god. Hey? Wounded warrior? Can we get a chair set up? You good? Okay, I'm going to put you down gentle on your good leg. Thank you. There you go. What happened? My calf. Ah, oh, fuck. I just pushed off, like, seriously, done, and you can feel it. Like, okay. Oh, there, any, there must be ice packs in the freezer, hey? Uh, yeah. I'll find, I'll get oh, There's ice packs in, in, our, in freezer. our freezer. In yeah. our freezer, yeah, I'll find that. Oh, there's ice packs in the cooler right here. Okay. Sorry, Kate, that sucks. Yeah, it's, it's fucked. Okay. okay. Um, you want to put your leg up? Yeah, I'll grab the other chair there. <sighs> so a muscle tear, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, been there, done that. No, I've done it again. It's actually torn. Oh, yeah. You can feel it go. Can you grab me a tensor bandage out of the boo-boo bin? If you have scissors, that'd be good because I'm sure Kate doesn't want Yeah. So we'll get somebody to take you down to Vic Jen. Yeah. And uh, get this looked at. Yeah, we'll do one wrap right around yeah. it. Yeah. All right, that was easy. Good luck. Okay, guys. Bye. See you in a bit. Sorry it happened. Now we're down a person. Just turns up the heat on me, though. Um, trying to keep everybody moving forward now. Okay. Could you tell me a little bit about Matt? Yeah. I had a young man working for me named Matt. Um, just a great guy. The crew loved him. Uh, great sensibility, sense of humor. He, everybody was rooting for this guy, uh, but I knew there was, there was more going on beneath the surface. So he would, uh, you know, leave things leaned up places that they would get easily knocked over or maybe ricochet a nail off of something. Like right. I saw him fall off of, a, uh, you know, not a high up, but like four feet off a piece of scaffolding. And when I saw it, I was like, how did that even happen? Like it just seemed really awkward and, and weird, the, the mechanics of the event. Trevor saw something familiar in Matt, a guy who was trying to quietly hold everything together, but who was coming apart at the seams. And he suspected that Matt was probably wired. And another member of my team came to me and said, look, like, I like him too, but we got to set our hearts aside here and he's just going to, he's going to hurt himself. He's going to hurt somebody else. It was um, mid-December. I, uh, I had to take Matt aside and said, look, uh, I, I, you always have a job with us, but I can't have you. I don't know what's going on uh, with you. I suspect I know. And if there's anything you want to talk to me about, you know, I'm here for you. But uh, I can't have you at work in this condition. I got to let you go, man, until 
until you can come back and, and, and you're in, in a better place. So, um, you know, and I had to walk treadly because I didn't want to feel like a, you know, I've always tried to avoid feeling like a hypocrite in my, in my life. It's right. been a losing battle, but, you know, um, I wasn't in a place where I could share with him what I was going through. Like I was in a very, like I was overusing drugs. I was, you know, I, I knew his problems because I, I, it was a mirror of my own, really. I was just holding it together better than him. I was managing better. One of my biggest regrets is that uh, I, I couldn't just say, look, man, I know what you're going through because I'm going through the same thing. And if we can just talk this through and, and get you some space, then let's see what we can do. Like, let's get you back on tools. I couldn't. So he left the site that day. Um, and so I think memory, that was like, I want to say the 21st or 18th, a real shitty time to let somebody go of December. Right before Christmas. There's so many people I know, including guests of this show, that have been exactly where Matt was. People who worked their asses off to manage their drug use, survive the overdose crisis, and hold on to their job. Often, people in this position will avoid getting onto any kind of potentially life-saving medication, like methadone or Dilaudid. In fact, often they avoid seeking any kind of formal help, because they don't want their boss to find out about their habit. When you've been fighting like this, and you get fired anyway, it can feel like losing your whole identity. It's as if the door is closing on your last chance at a normal life. This is when things tend to really spiral. And Trevor says, that's what happened to Matt. I received a message from him, I think, on the 27th that said, um, hey, man, no hard feelings. You're the best boss I've ever had. Um, you're, you're an incredible guy, and I love my time with you. And, yeah, and just a, just a super flattering uh, message. And, and um, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, a few days later he lost his life uh, to, uh, they don't know if it was an intentional overdose, um, or, or an accidental overdose, but, uh, but he was found th- a few days later uh, face down on his bed by himself. So, I just, I carry that close to my heart because it's, uh, you know, like, I just honestly feel like that tragedy could have been averted if, if there was, you know, I, I feel like uh, that was a huge lost opportunity for me to make a difference in somebody's life. We, we let him go and we let, we just, you know, and this is... What would have been the thing to do to prevent him from dying? Not let him go home alone uh, without contact. Like, I, I wish I had a, a... I wish I had shared with him that I had I had a similar experience in life or was going through a similar experience. Maybe he would have confided in me before dying. Okay, let's start here. Assuming a 50-year-old foundation is straight. I trust those guys. They probably... You know what? The level of craftsmanship back then... They probably put more effort into it. They probably knew better than I did. Okay, let's snap these bad boys. Oh, you got one? Okay, that's it. It wasn't long after Matt's death that everything started to fall apart for Trevor. For years, he'd kept up an astonishing work ethic, but that started to change. Trevor was finding it harder and harder to be productive, and he was having a harder and harder time affording his drugs. He figured it was just a matter of time before the people in his life, his mom, his boss, figured out what was going on. And so he started to, as he puts it, grenade his life. 
He took a leave of absence from work, and he spent the summer of 2017 desperately trying to kick. It was a brutal slog of quitting and relapsing. Trevor always imagined, if he really set his mind to it, he could beat the habit. Nothing felt darker than the realization that it was gonna be a lot harder than he thought. My substance misuse had taken me to a place that for the last 18 months of my life I had been living in my mother's basement. Um, the story uh, uh, that I had given her was I was paying off bills. I was putting my paychecks towards paying off uh, credit card debt. I was not. I was spending my paychecks on drugs. Um, and she was giving me free accommodation and loaning me money. I, I didn't have any hope. Like I, I didn't think I could get clean. And if I could get clean, I didn't think I could live life. I largely felt that I was just broken. And I knew there was something wrong in my head. And I felt strongly that it was permanent. March 6, 2019, I was certain that was my last day on this planet. I had had enough. I couldn't, I couldn't live anymore. I couldn't function. What, what were you going to do? I was going to kill myself. I was out. So I'm in my mom's basement and I was like, she's going to go to work. I'm going to back my Jeep into the garage and that's going to be the end of it. And it was super cut and dry. I wasn't looking to overcomplicate the situation. I'd love to tell you the, you know, like the thought of my mom finding my body was a big deal. It was, but maybe my machismo saved me. It occurred to me in that moment that nobody knew where I was at in life and nobody knew how bad it was for me. And that if I just woke up dead um, or they, I was just found, out dead, found dead, people would find all this out about me posthumously and they would think that I didn't try or I didn't fight or I didn't, you know, do the work, right? Like I just gave up. Right. And that was a for my sense of masculinity, like my sense of self at the time, I was, you know, prided myself in being a hard worker and showing up and doing the work. And so something shifted in that. And I was like, you know what, I can kill myself anytime. Even if I can't live without drugs or if I can't get clean, I'll try a few times. And then when I die, everybody will feel bad for me. Like they'll just be like, oh, well, that was so courageous, right? right. I, uh, I went upstairs, I woke my mom up uh, from a dead sleep, standing in her doorway. I can't even imagine what that poor woman went through, was feeling. Um, and I was in really tough shape on a lot of, a lot of cocaine and ketamine. And, uh, I just was like, I'm, I, I can't even remember my words, but they weren't eloquent. It was like, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. I can't live without drugs. I need to get help. And that was it. Trevor says, looking back, he got lucky in a lot of ways. He was lucky he had a caring parent to turn to. And he was lucky that his mom had 30000 in savings that she was willing to put towards a stint at Cedars, an upscale recovery center in the woods. And there's another way that Trevor got lucky. Abstinence-based recovery doesn't work for everyone. In fact, for many people, it leaves them even more vulnerable to overdose. But Trevor took to it. After a life of secrecy, it was a huge relief to finally tell the truth. And for the first time in years, Trevor's body and mind had a break from the relentless pace of the job site. Were you able to come back to your job or? No. And that's a bit of a sensitive topic, but, uh, you know, I would say that uh, my employer, um, based on their experience with addiction and, and stuff like that at the time, reacted in a way that um, they, looking back on regret. Um, yeah. You know, what I, I'll call it what it is. I was asked to resign myself. You know, I was right. basically asked to fire myself due to, to health issues. Um, and we're not we're not trying to um, no. you know paint anybody in a bad light. No. Just 
there's there's other people in the trades that are going to be listening to this. Yeah. And they're going to be trying to think, well, okay, I'm, what I'm do using I do? drugs. Maybe I'm having trouble. Should I put my hand up and tell tell my employer? And and our our advice is probably, well, knowing nothing else right now, it's it's probably not safe to do that. Yeah. So this is what I, this is what I tell people right now. Tell somebody. You gotta you, you gotta tell 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 somebody you're in a bad way. Get somebody on your on your side. What I found out is there's a lot more people looking for that connection than I thought. Trevor now frequently visits job sites to talk to the crew about substance use. He tells his story, and he does the thing that he couldn't have imagined before, letting himself be vulnerable in front of other guys. And so I'm seeing a lot of, um, usually people of my age and older, sorry to say, let's say 40 plus, that are coming out of the woodwork saying, fuck, you know, I felt the same way, or, you know, I went through that, or, you know, so there's a real yearning in, in, in whether the guys want to admit it or not. There's something missing in these men. There's a piece of their soul missing somewhere that they don't feel hurt, they do feel alone. You know, I feel like I wasn't as alone as I, I led myself to believe all those years. And then we got the military. And those stupid swallows, move, swallows. So cute. Okay. Look at their little fat bodies. Little and fat bodies. nice little tails. How do they even fly? Okay, <laughs> you little swallows. Hey guys. Love and light, but I need you to move. Can you relocate, please? Yeah, I know. They're not the red-bellied ones. They're not the protected ones, so. Really? Yeah. They are, Don't say that. They're not. Like they are. No, they're yellow. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Uh, so we'll get this laid out. We'll get this I tell you, I, you know, for all my talking about my emotions and talking about um, my failures and where I didn't add up and the balls I dropped and um, all that stuff, I've never felt like I can carry so much more, uh, um, uh, so much in my life. Um, I feel stronger now than I ever have. Coming up March 7th is my clean date. I'll celebrate four years. So in that oh, time, congrats. May of 2020, I was recognized as a Paul Harris Fellow by the Victoria Rotary Club. Rotary Club. It's an honor that also Boris Yeltsin and um, a number of other people, Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, have attained. In um, November of last year, I became an honorary citizen of Victoria, um, BC. So basically got a key to the city. Um, and so... You know, I was doing it wrong, man. I was doing it wrong. Fucking a. Well, uh, stay safe, and thanks so much for sharing your afternoon with us. Thank you very much. When I was a kid growing up in Yellowknife, my dad told me, boys don't cry. He was a hard worker, maybe in that sense a little like Trevor's dad. And this was actually pretty sensible advice for a northern mining town in the 1970s. It was advice that served me well on the playgrounds, streets, and job sites where I'd find myself. Lots of our dads told us stuff like this. But if we're going to stop all the deaths, it's not just down to us to break with these old ideas. Obviously, we're going to need safe supply, but we really need more safety at work too. There's a quarter of a million construction workers in BC, and only around 13% are unionized. Unions mean higher wages, job security, and sick leave. They also mean an end to arbitrary firings and a more serious workplace safety culture. 
when people feel safer to come out as drug users without fear of reprisal, then they don't need to hide behind hypermasculinity and the culture of secrecy that goes with it. But one of the biggest secrets of all, this industry relies on drugs to get the job done. Walk down a street in your city, look over at that house, look up at that condo tower, built of concrete and steel, cocaine and oxycodone. Crackdown is produced on the territories of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwatin. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex DeBoer, Brenda Longfellow, Lisa Hale, and me, Garth Mullins. The radio diaries you heard throughout the show were recorded by Trevor Botkin. Brenda Longfellow and Dania Fast provided us with intellectual direction. This episode was mixed by Alexander Kim and Sam Fenn. Score by James Ash. Special thanks to Natasha Twinar and Andrzej Selinski, as well as to members of Kaput's Substance Use in the Trades Working Group. Today's episode was funded in part by a Shirk Insight Development Grant held at York University. If you like what we do, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. As with every month, sadly, I have a few people to say goodbye to. Joe, the vice president of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, has passed. Also, Pablo, who made us all shine like diamonds, is gone. And my old comrade, Jagdeep Singh Manga is also gone. See you on the other side, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six. Yeah, just standing right there. Uh, we're gonna want uh, cattle want to be on this. Yeah, I'll um, go get her. I think she's hoping Alyssa finish yeah. the other one. But so the other voice you're hearing right now is Kate. I know you asked if Kate was uh, <laughs> <laughs> is okay. So Kate is. Uh, she spent a couple days. What was it that you tore? Uh, Gastrocnemius. Gastro. Calf. Calf. Well, I, 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 how are you? 51 now? Yeah, let's go with that. We'll go 51. I'm 54. 54. I've been in the trade since uh, 1990. What would you say the toll on your body's been physically? Oh my God. <laughs> Seven concussions. Yeah. A lot of broken bones. Yeah. Yeah. And that's tough. That's why you don't bend and twist. You know bending and twisting. <laughs>